Um, okay, well, uh, good evening and thank you very much for your hospitality here. Um, I, I'd like to start by contradicting someone, and you've given me an opportunity. Thank you very much. Um, the, uh, the contradiction is, is about Limud, uh, because you said that Limud was about teaching uh, Jews teaching Jews about Judaism, and I don't think it is. Um, I want to, uh, and, and you know, I hope you know, that uh, Limud comes to Orange County, and it's coming in mid-February. Um, this is a worldwide phenomenon, Limud. Limud means learning. Um, and it's, it's all over the world. Uh, and Limud LA uh, decides to get away from LA and go as far as they can possibly imagine. So they come to Costa Mesa. Um, and, uh, and you guys, apparently Orange County residents, are allowed to purchase a commuter pass, which means that you don't have to stay at the hotel, uh, but you get to get all the sessions and eat all the food and stuff like that. Um, so it's well worth doing. But the reason I wanted to challenge is because you said it was about Jews teaching Jews about Judaism. Judaism is not a word I like. It's not a Jewish word. Okay. Um, I, actually, let's just try this little experiment. Um, think of the phrase... Judaism is a religion. Okay? Think of that phrase. Judaism is a religion. Right. Hands up those of you who agree with that statement. Come on, come on, commit. Okay. Hands up those who disagree with that statement. Excellent. And hands up those of you who would like to take a third view. Excellent. Okay, very good. Right. Now, so we could have, couldn't we, uh, uh, an excellent debate about Judaism as a religion, is it, isn't it? Half say yes, half say no, backwards and forwards and stuff like that. If you want to discuss Jewish stuff, you're best to discuss it in Jewish language. Because the minute you translate something into another language, then you're not just changing languages, you're actually changing mindsets. Right? So let's just look at Judaism as a religion as a Jewish statement first, because English is very good for saying Christian stuff. It's not necessarily so good for saying Jewish stuff, right? So let's say Judaism is a religion in a Jewish language, and then we can discuss it once we understand all the terms, all right? And of course, the Jewish language par excellence is Hebrew. Now we know that we have Yiddish and Ladino and Judeo-Arabic and so on, and all of those languages came into being because Jews who spoke German or Spanish or Arabic still found there were some words that you couldn't translate. You must not ever translate Shabbat as Saturday because you kill it stone dead. It isn't. Or even the Sabbath. It's Shabbat. The Sabbath's something else in people's heads. Right? And, and um, you know, those kinds of things. Right? Kosher is not clean or legal or something. Kosher is kosher. Right? There's some untranslatable words, you know, Torah is Torah, Mitzvah is Mitzvah, and so on and so forth. Right? So let's translate Judaism is a religion into Hebrew, the classic original Jewish language, and then we can debate it. All right, so I don't know how good your Hebrew is. Let's work our way through it simply. Let's go for the small words first. All right, uh, the indefinite article. What is the Hebrew for uh? Hmm? We don't have it. Okay, good. We can cross that word out. Excellent. Great relief. Right. So let's go for the other small word, is. What is the Hebrew for is? Uh, it doesn't exist. Right. Good. You just, it's worth stopping to think for a moment. 
What is the nature of the mindset of a group of people who don't bother to have a word for the present tense of the word to be? We've got the past tense, we've got the future tense, we don't have the present tense. It's quite interesting, isn't it? And why? Because Jews aren't very interested in just being. They're really not. Right? They want to know, what is that? You know, if somebody says, leave me alone, I just want to be. And they go, be what? Right? <laughs> you want to be, be clever, be active, be stupid, be tall, be fat, be rich. Be, you know, what, what do you want to be? I mean, just be. What use is that to anybody? I want to know your, what you're being. Right? So is doesn't ever activate in the Jewish mind unless it's connected to something. It is something. Tell me the something. I don't care about the is. Tell me the something. So we don't have the present tense of the verb to be. All right. These are the small words. Let's come to the big words, the Judaism and the religion. What is the classical Hebrew word for religion? That's modern Hebrew. Classical Hebrew word for religion. Doesn't exist. Okay, we can cross that out. Doesn't matter. Okay. What is the classical Hebrew word for Judaism? Israel. Well, Israel is a people or a person. Hmm? Yahadut. Yahadut, modern Hebrew. Modern Hebrew created the word Yahadut in order to translate into Hebrew the word Judaism. Right, you've got to realize modern Hebrew doesn't always tell you Jewish stuff. Because after all, you know, modern Hebrew had to have a word for helicopter, right? Because you've got to, right? It's, it's there, and therefore you've got to have a word for it. It doesn't tell you anything about the Jewish mindset, okay? But the, the, he, the classical Hebrew word for Judaism doesn't exist. Excellent. So, now, we have our statement, Judaism is a religion. We were all prepared to debate it, half thought this, half thought that. And now we're not going to debate it at all. We're going to go to Moshe Rabbeinu. We're going to go to Moses. He's just coming down Sinai. And we're going, I mean, after all, you know, doesn't he know what he's talking about? Let's go to him and ask him the question. So we go to Moses and we say, Moses, is Judaism a religion or not? And he says, I'm sorry I don't speak English. <laughs> right? Can you please translate that for me? And we go, oh, right, okay. So there's no discussion. The, the very contention that Judaism is or is not a religion, it's just not a Jewish discussion. It just doesn't exist. Right? So I don't like the word Judaism. And I say that Limud is about Jewish stuff. And if you find that too vague, good. Because Jewish stuff is what it's about. There's all kinds of Jewish stuff. Right, earlier I gathered that I um, inadvertently rejected an offer of dinner here. And I, anybody who was involved in that, I really, really apologize. I didn't know about it. Uh, but I was taken out to dinner instead um, by others, and I'm grateful for that. Um, and we had a little bit of discussion about Chabad, Lubavitch. And I said um, that I would rather that Chabad fragmented a little bit and became a little weaker. Because that would enable us to get Chabad into its proper scale. Because we should just remember that Chabad is one sect of Hasidism. And Hasidism is one type of Haredi Judaism. And Haredi Judaism is one type of orthodoxy. And orthodoxy is one type of religious response to Judaism. And religion is one type of response to being Jewish. 
right? All of those things are part of Jewish stuff. And Limud is about all of them. So if you look at the Limud program, you will not be able to say, well, no, I'm not really interested. If, if anything Jewish is at all interesting, it's for you. There will be stuff there for you. Right, that's guaranteed. Anyway, that's a long, very long advert, but I wanted to respond to that comment. Um, and the other thing to say, I, I don't want to say it flippantly, though I'll say it in passing. Um, the Community Scholar Programme that brings me here, I hope you recognise quite what a world-class programme this is. I, I don't mean the world-class fact that they bring world-class scholars, right? Because this year they didn't manage that, so they got me here, right? But I mean that the very idea of a bunch of people getting together to produce resources for a community, to bring scholars to the community and spread them out all over, uh, is just astonishing. Uh, and there are very few opportunities to go and spend a month in a community um, presenting lectures, as I've been called upon to do here, anywhere in the Jewish world. Anywhere in the Jewish world. Now, you should be very proud of it, and I hope you support it. Um, both by turning up to sessions, as you've done now, and, and materially. It's not going to happen unless people contribute to it. I was not asked to make that appeal, but I am making it anyway. All right, I think it's important. Okay, what was my topic? Oh, yes, I remember. All right, what are we supposed to think about Israel? What should we think about Israel? Now, I, I am well aware of the fact that I am going to blunder into tiger country at this point. All right, and I did not bring a gun. So I, because I'm British, right? you probably all aren't, right? Um, I know. Um, but nevertheless, I'm unarmed. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I want to explore this topic um, in the full knowledge that Americans think to some degree quite differently about Israel to the way that European Jews do, let alone non-Jews. Um, and therefore, my take on this will be somewhat different, I guess, to the take that you are accustomed to hearing. And that's just as well. Because if I'm going to say what you're accustomed to hearing, then you don't need me. I mean, you probably don't need me anyway, but <laughs> the only reason for coming is to hear something different. Um, so we have uh, spent uh, 150 years uh, exposed to, we, the Jewish people, exposed to the... Uh, pressures, demands, challenges, inspirations, visions, complications of Zionism. Well, you have to remember that your great-grandparents, probably, or great-great-grandparents, probably didn't give Israel a second thought as a physical place. Almost certainly gave it much thought as a kind of focus of intent, as a dream, as a, as a, a almost almost a, a fabled place, right? But as a physical place to go live, a tiny number of Jews did that. Um, the vast majority didn't. Um, and Hasidim, we mentioned Hasidim before, for example, were very clear about the fact there was no need to go and live in Israel because every Jew could have Israel where they were. Now, you are in a building called Temple Bet-El. This is an, um, an early assertion on the part of the reform movement, that you, don't, you can have a temple wherever you choose to be. Of course, in classical Judaism, there's only ever one temple, and only one place it could be, and that's Jerusalem. Right? The idea that you could have a temple wherever a bunch of Jews chose to get together 
was a categorical statement on the part of the early reform movement that we are not, not going to get involved in this Israel-orientated thing. The Holy Land is a primitive tribal concept, and we reform Jews have grown up beyond that. We are people of the world, ethical monotheism. That tribal desire to return to an old place is over. And indeed, the ancient desire to get back to a temple and create the sacrificial cult and so on, that's all over. We've moved on. By the way, it's not such a radical statement when you think about the fact that Maimonides, when called upon to explain why we had sacrifices, suggested that it was God's system for weaning the Jews off the terrible practices that they will have witnessed in Egypt. Now, I don't know what Maimonides was uh, thinking of at the time, because to suggest that somehow or other a great chunk of Torah legislation is actually just kind of a temporary process is astonishing from a fellow like Maimonides. You know the Torah is supposed to be eternal. How can you suggest this? It's just a transitional phase to wean the Jews off something. Right? But anyway, there it is. Uh, but nevertheless... Um, the, the reform movement, certainly in its origins, wanted nothing to do with Zionism. Right? As I'm sure you're all aware, uh, the reform movement in broad terms was committed to the idea that Jews should integrate themselves into the society in which they lived. And, and indeed, insofar as this might represent something like a, a solution to the Jewish problem... Um, by integrating themselves into the world in which they were, into the society in which they were, people would learn to accept them. Right? Well, of course, this took a very severe knock uh, at the time of the Shoah. Right? No Jewish community in the history of the world had been as fully integrated, even assimilated, as German Jewry. Right? No Jewish community. Right? And yet, it didn't save them. And that, of course, gave a, quite a severe knock to the reform anticipation that if you became sufficiently integrated into society, then why would people hold anything against you? Although it took a severe knock, it didn't knock them right off course. Right? And while a number of reform leaders did indeed start to get involved in the Zionist movement, as a generality, most reform Jews did not. And most reform leaders did not. And so uh, Zionism, uh, as you all know, uh, took little or no notice of the vast body of Jews who were Reformed Jews. And, and the State of Israel was set up without paying any attention, really, effectively, to reform self-definitions and aspirations and so on. This is why the uh, Israeli system, when it talks about religion, talks about orthodox religion. Right? It's a very liberal system which accommodates any number of religions, all kinds. I mean, it's happy to accept, you know, half a dozen different Christian stripes, but it's only got, officially, the vision of one stripe of Judaism, that's Orthodox Judaism. Why? Because the Reform Movement just wasn't in the conversation when the State of Israel got started. It just wasn't there. Now, we can all uh, suggest our own particular understandings of when things changed for the Reform Movement. It's definitely changed. Right. Um, my, I date it at around the 67 war. Uh, in, in June 1967, you may all remember um, that terrible moment when we all held our breaths thinking 
that maybe Israel would indeed be wiped off the map. Uh, and there was kind of smoke and guns and stuff and nobody could see through it and got all these radio broadcasts from the Lebanese and the Egyptians were marching victoriously towards Tel Aviv and you know, nobody knew what was happening. And for uh, three or four days, people held their breath. And then suddenly the smoke cleared and Israel said, actually, we've won. We got... But for those few moments of kind of existential catastrophe, a significant proportion of Jews who previously would have said, oh, you know, it's Israel's not, not my business, found that despite any philosophical stance they might have taken, it absolutely was their business. They cared passionately. They were queuing up to give blood and their kids were rushing off to pick oranges and it was all suddenly mattered. So it just simply wasn't honest anymore to say, we don't care. And that, I think, led to a great reversal of reform attitudes towards Israel. Of course, for Orthodox Jews, it was a different challenge. For Orthodox Jews, when Zionism got going, Zionism was essentially, as you realise, a secular movement. Right? Zionism was a political movement. It uh, was fed by the general aspiration in Europe for uh, national self-determination. And in Europe at that time, at the turn of the century, um, different uh, ethnic groups were asserting their right to have their own country. Right? And, and uh, Europe was more or less happy with that assertion. Right? Uh, maybe they wanted to stick five or six ethnic groups together into a sort of federated country, like um, Yugoslavia, or maybe like the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But nevertheless, the general idea that ethnic groups should, to some degree, have a level of self-determination made sense in the European model. And by the way, continues to assert itself in Europe. You know, so we saw Yugoslavia, didn't we, fall apart into pieces and, and each group wants its own state. And even as, as if that wasn't satisfactory, Serbia has an enclave within it which is Kosovo. Kosovo is a bit more Albanian. They want their own state, right? And every little group of people wants their own state. Why not the Jews? And generally speaking in Europe, that made very good sense for secular folk. The Orthodox, of which there were many different stripes, we have to remember, it's not just one group, but the Orthodox, generally speaking, felt, well, I'm not too sure about this. There are two reasons why not. First of all, because the Zionist movement appeared to be secular, that is, it wasn't interested in Torah, so they were asserting they were going to create some Jewish state which wasn't going to be Jewish, that was going to take Jewish control over this land and yet wasn't going to apply Jewish law. How could you accommodate that? That's worse, isn't it, than it being uh, run by non-Jews, in which case, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. Right? And the second problem was that we were supposed to be exiled from the land of Israel. So surely, if you go back to the land of Israel when God has exiled us, that's a smack in the face to God. You know, if you send your children up to their bedroom and say, don't come down till I call you, if they come down, that creates more trouble. Right? They should wait until they told them to come down. And the same thing's happened. The Jews have been sent to their bedroom, and now look what we're doing. We're coming down before we've been told we can. Right? So the Orthodox Jews, generally speaking, just wanted to stay away from this whole Zionist thing. Again, there were exceptions. Individuals who could see where this was heading. One of those exceptions was a man called Rav Cook, who became, as a mystic not least, became the first chief rabbi of, of then Palestine. Right? And Rav Cook um, did two things. First of all, he applauded publicly and regularly the, uh, the work and activity of secular Jews in Israel. 
the secular Zionists. He said, these people are doing more for the Jewish future than, you know, lots of other folk who are just davening or shuckling or whatever it is, okay? He recognised, he, he um, aggrandised the secular Zionists who were tilling the ground and changing, you know, deserts into making deserts bloom and all that sort of stuff. That is a remarkable statement to come from a bearded, you know, bestrimaled mystic fellow, right? But the second thing he said, and this was the remarkable thing that, that turned it for the Orthodox, or a lot of Orthodox, is he said, you're absolutely right the Jews can't return so long as, the, as we've been exiled. And we can't return until God says we can come back. But look, God's obviously said we can come back. Otherwise, why would we be here? So now don't be stupid. You know the joke about the fellow on the roof and there's a flood, right? And he prays to God and says, God, please save me. And a voice from heaven says, I will. And a fellow comes with a rowboat and he says, jump in. He goes, no, no, I'm all right. I'm being looked after. So the rowboat goes off, right? And then he goes, please, please save me. The water's rising and rising. He goes, please save me. He goes, don't worry, I will. A helicopter comes, drops a rope. He goes, come on, climb up. He says, no, no, I'm fine. I'm being looked after. Helicopter goes away again. And the water keeps rising up to his nose. He goes, God, God, save me. God says, I sent you a rowboat, I sent you a helicopter, what do you want? Right? Okay, so it's the same sort of thing, right? If we've got the state of Israel is coming into being, the Jews are making it happen, the, the, the deserts are blooming, the ingathering of the exiles, how can you deny that the exile is over? Said Rav Cook. And that made it possible for Orthodox Jews, or a proportion of Orthodox Jews anyway, to say, great, this is true, we can join this Zionist endeavour. And so they did. Now, by the way, that comes to bite us on the bum, as um, you might say, with all due respect. Um, that, right. because, uh, because, of course, nowadays, that same doctrine exists. This is, uh, as it says in some of our Hebrew liturgy, the beginning of the flowering of our redemption. Right? Some of you, I don't know if that phrase appears in your liturgy at all. But it exists in some liturgies, right? Medinat Israel, the state of Israel, the beginning of the flowering of our redemption. If that's the case, then the settler movement, for example, is the most committed to this doctrine. Because if God has allowed you to return to some hilltop somewhere, how can you walk away from it? So what was a really nice piece of squaring the circle in the 1930s, 1920s, becomes an extremely inflexible stance in the 2010s. And, and, and this was one of the, you know, you never know what's going to happen to the words you use. So Zionism in its early stages was, as I'm sure we all know, a, a highly contentious territory for the Jewish world. Uh, and I certainly remember um, in the 1960s, and I don't know what it was like in America, but I certainly remember in the 1960s in Britain, in the leadership of the Jewish community, the leadership of the Jewish community, uh, and by the way, the main fundraising body at that time in Britain, Jewish uh, Israel fundraising body, besides the JNF, um, Karen Kayemet, was the British arm of the Jewish Agency. It was called in Britain the JPA. That stood for the Joint Palestine Appeal, 1960s. 
Right? Nobody was embarrassed by the word Palestine in those days. Right? Because the, the only Palestinians that had existed up until the beginning of the 1960s was the Jewish Israelis before the state of independence. They were the Palestinians. If you'd gone to, if you'd gone to, uh, to the land of Israel in 1945 and you'd said, introduce me to a Palestinian, they would have straight away taken you off to introduce you to a Jew. If you'd wanted to meet an Arab, you would have had said, introduce me to an Arab. Right? So the word Palestinian was uncontentious in the 1960s. It became more contentious thereafter. But in Britain in the 1960s, I was involved, for no sensible reason, in the um, representative body of British Jewry, a thing called the Board of Deputies of British Jews, which is one of the things that convinced me that unless something changed radically, British Jewry was well on its way down the drain. Right? But the Board of Deputies of British Jews um, had its plenary sessions once a month when representatives came to discuss matters of great import, like whether their names were spelt correctly on the minutes and stuff like that. And, um, and it was perfectly common and uncontroversial for a discussion to go forward about some aspect of Israel and for somebody to stand up and say, well, of course, I'm not a Zionist, but it seems to me that, you know, it's a perfectly legitimate stance for a Jew to take in the 1960s in Britain. I'm not a Zionist. Right? Just, you didn't have to be a Zionist. Why? That was a particular kind of position. Some people were, some people weren't. Right? How did this all change? Well, of course, it changed as more pressure built on the state of Israel, uh, not least as a result of the Palestinian movement which got going in the 60s, but really became evident in the late 60s and early 70s with the development of the Palestine, Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, and some very skilled um, uh, political positioning. At which point it became a bit harder for Jews to stand on the sidelines. And as I say, the 67 war also moved a lot of Jews from the sidelines into having to recognize that to some degree... If you weren't for us, you were against us. And so Jews felt they had to line up to some extent. Um, nevertheless, uh, even then, there were diverse voices around the Jewish world as to how one wanted to view Israel. So I just want to leave that there for the moment because I don't know what your attitudes are to Israel. In a moment, I'm going to try and find out. Right. I just want to leave that there for a moment and I want to go back to the Torah because I think it's no bad thing when doing Jewish stuff to go back to the Torah for a minute just to see if there's anything there we can learn. Okay. Probably isn't, but it's always <laughs> worth a try. Um, as you know, the Torah is a, is a tale told about um, uh, mankind initially. It starts off with, uh, with Adam and Eve and all that lot. And then, a bit like West Side Story, scanning over Manhattan, it finally kind of zooms in, eventually, to a backyard where some guys are playing basketball, right? And that's effectively what the Torah does, right? It kind of scans all of the world, and finally, finally, zooms in Abraham, right? And the rest of the story is Abraham's family. And that's us, okay? And Abraham's family... Uh, is, is told, Abraham is told, this is your land, you can have it, it's, it's all yours, I give it to you, you're going to inherit it, it's going to be for your children and stuff like that. And almost immediately, a spat 
breaks out between Abraham's herdsman and Lot's herdsman. Lot, Abraham's nephew. Right? And they're, and they're vying for wells and water and grazing and stuff. And Abraham goes straight to Lot and says to Lot, okay, Lot, this land is big enough for the both of us. Okay, let's stand on the hillside there. You can take the left if you want, and I'll take the right. You can take the right if you want, I'll take the left. It's up to you. Let's not fight over this. This isn't important enough. He's just been given it by God. Now, luckily, there's nothing we can learn from that that's applicable to the modern age. (laughs) Imagine if there were, what would we do, right? But just being given it, just being promised by God, this is not the same as being given a mandate by the United Nations. It's a bit more significant. Just being promised by God, and Abraham says, well, you can have half of it. Okay, well, maybe that's not very interesting to us. Right? The, the Israelites uh, wander about, and they go off down to Egypt, and eventually they come back. Right? Moses and all that crowd, yes? And, and they wander around the wilderness, as you know, for 40 years, and they go around the back, you know, sort of tradesman's entrance, they go around the back to come into the land of Israel. I don't know if you've thought about that, the geography of it, but they're going to cross the Jordan. The Jordan's, interestingly, on the wrong side isn't it, right? So what they've done is they've meandered through the Negev, basically, right? Obviously stopping off in Eilat for a bit of R&R, and then they've come around the back, and they're ready to come across the Jordan. Okay, great. They've been doing this for 40 years. That's what they've been set up to do. The journey has been to leave Egypt and get to the promised land. Yes? You know all that. They get to that side of the Jordan. They're all getting ready to go. And two and a half tribes, two and a half tribes, guys, that's nearly a quarter of the entire Jewish people. Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. They come to Moses and they say, yeah, that's actually, it's quite nice around here. <laughs> you know, it's Orange County. I don't see why we should move any further. <laughs> you know, what? We'll stay here, okay? You go on ahead. We'll stay here. We'll build nice little houses and just be great. What does Moses say? He is, as you would expect, incandescent with them. So the whole plan has been to get into the land of Israel. And he says to them, how dare you do this? We're here on the very border. We're about to go in and conquer the land. And you're going to leave your brethren to conquer the land while you sit in comfort here in Orange County? You can't do that. And so the tribes of these two and a half tribes say... Well, I suppose you're right. So I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll build houses here for our families. And then we'll go in and fight with everybody else. And then when the battle's over, we'll come back and live over. And Moses says, okay. (laughs) Okay. That means to say at the very moment of being about to enter the land of Israel, Moses cheerfully accepts that nearly a quarter of the Israelites will not enter the land of Israel. They will live somewhere else. What happened to Ali Ashlichim? Wasn't the Jewish agency got something to say about this? Aren't they supposed to live there, for goodness sake? (laughs) Apparently not. It's okay. Orange County, you're fine. We were never told that. And they stayed there. Very strange. Now, you need to understand something about the holiness of the land. 
Because there's a very, very clear system about why the land of Israel is important. Right? We don't really have time to discuss the concept of holiness, except, I'm sure you do, that it is anyway a difficult concept. Right? Difficult to define exactly what it means. Clearly, it isn't quite just a bunch of people walking around in a saintly manner, right? But it's, it's, it's something to do with being God-centered, God-infused, something. But we don't know exactly what holiness means. But nevertheless, we do know that there is a concept that suggests that some things are more holy than other things, right? Although it's continuously under, um, undermined by the assertion that everything's holy. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. Right? Holy, 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 the whole world is full of his glory. So what's holy, what isn't holy? Everything's holy. Right? But nevertheless, we have concepts that some things are more holy than other things. Right? We have Chol HaMoed. Yes, the middle days of a festival. Chol HaMoed, the secular days of a festival. Well, you know, what's secular about the days of a festival? They're festival days. Right? But they're not quite the same as... You know, so, so quite where one draws the line, I mean, you know, Judaism is a great endeavour at, in, at infusing everything with a sort of level of holiness somehow. Right? That's the, that's the whole game. So, nevertheless, we have this concept that there are holier and less holy places on the planet. Let's just understand the system. In the classical system, where is the holiest spot on the planet? Not just Jerusalem. Not just the Temple Mount. The Holy of Holies. It's a bit of a giveaway, isn't it, right? The Holy of Holies is the holiest spot in the whole planet, right? That's why they call it that, okay? The Holy of Holies. Now, where is the Holy of Holies? Where is the Holy of Holies? Well, it doesn't exist any longer. Of course, it was destroyed. Where was the Holy of Holies? On the Temple Mount. Where exactly? We don't really know. Right? There's a strong chance that it was under the Dome of the Rock. Or in that place. Right? The Dome of the Rock is built over a rock which has a kind of dent in it, which Muslims see to be very significant as um, the possible place from which Muhammad made that uh, dramatic uh, mythical journey to heaven in one night. I say mythical in its proper sense, not meaning fantasy fable but it's proper sense of a story that has more power than mere fact right so Muhammad makes this journey and therefore that's what makes Jerusalem a significant place because of this journey and that dent in the stone is thought to be the hoof print of his horse kicking off right um others think that that stone might be the sacrificial stone on which Abraham was uh, called upon to offer and then not offer his son Isaac. Right? One way or another, anyway, maybe that stone's very significant. That's why it's called the Dome of the Rock. It's a rock. Right? It's not a mosque, it's a dome. Otherwise they'd call it the Mosque of the Rock. Right? Well, they don't. Right? It's just a dome. It's a place housing the rock. So maybe that rock was inside the Holy of Holies. We don't know. Right? Um, the Holy of Holies was an empty space, effectively. Uh, it did in the first temple house the the Mishkan, the original the the Ark. You know, Harrison Ford also got into that, um, <laughs> right? It housed the Ark uh, and the broken pieces, the the two tablets of stone and the broken pieces of the broken two tablets of stone were in that 
Holy of Holies, but of course that was destroyed in Babylon in the, when the Babylonians came in 586. So there's, there's no more Holy of Holies. When the, they rebuilt the temple, um, they presumably put it in the same spot, the Holy of Holies. And it wasn't that long after, so they probably knew the spot. But of course by then it had nothing inside it at all because the, the objects inside had been taken. So it was just an empty space. Um, we're told that when Pompey the Great, the great Roman general, uh, burst in on the temple in the year 66 BCE. He threw open the doors of the Holy of Holies with the expectation of finding all the great temple treasures in there. Threw open the doors and there was nothing there. And according to the accounts, he just backed out in silence. Mm -hmm. Just kind of stunned by the emptiness of this. Right? Anyway, so the Holy of Holies is the holiest spot on the planet. Right? Uh, and that's why, by the way, if you go to Jerusalem, you'll see a sign saying, Jews, don't go up here. Because ordinary folk like you and me are not supposed to stroll about on the Holy of Holies. The only person allowed to enter the Holy of Holies is the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. And he can only do it once, on one day of the year, Yom Kippur. And even then, if he's not so completely prepared for the experience as to get it exactly right, he can be struck dead on the spot. Which is why the Kohen Gadol always went in with a rope tied round his waist. Because if he was struck dead, nobody was going in after him. So they could just haul him out. Right? Right? So Yom Kippur, just to remember this, in case you just want to get the moment, the significance of a moment, on Yom Kippur... The holiest day of the year, the holiest man of the people went on to the holiest spot of earth to talk to God. We don't have any of that anymore, except Yom Kippur. Strange, isn't that? Okay. So anyway, we've got this Holy of Holies, but as, as we've established, we're not quite sure exactly where it is. So it's a very precise spot, but we can't very precisely locate it. All right. Holy of Holies. What's the next holiest, the sort of second rank holiest place after the Holy of Holies? Hmm? In Judaism, yes. Well, not the Kotel. No, that's just a bit of show-off stuff from Herod. What's the holy, next holiest? The Western Wall? No, that's what he said. It's, uh, the Western, nothing clever about the Western Wall. That the Jews have ended up with the ambition, the greatest thing we ever wanted to do was talk to a wall, is really sad. <laughs> right? I once wrote an article in the 19... After 1967, you know, when we captured the wall, I wrote an article in about 1969 um, proposing that we should knock the wall down. Right? It, it, nobody uh, took it up as an idea. <laughs> I, I still think I was right. But anyway, I'll go back into that in a minute. So, what's the next holiest thing? After the Holy of Holies... Sorry? No, 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 never important. Uh, until now, it's political, then it becomes important. No, the next holiest spot is the Temple Mount itself, the Temple Precinct. Okay, the, the Temple was a really holy place. Nobody was allowed into the Temple without a quick dunk in a mikvah. Right? They, in fact, they had mikvahot, you know, ritual baths, around the entrance to the Temple, because if you walked through the streets of Jerusalem, you were going to get all sullied up so you couldn't go in. So you had to have a mikvah right by the entrance so you could dunk and in, and you okay. Right? It was a really, really holy spot. Anybody going in there had to be holied up. Right? So the Temple Precinct is the next holiest part of the world. Good. 
It's a very simple system, isn't it? You can see how it goes. It's kind of, it's concentric circuits. It's circles. It's a target. You've got the Holy of Holies. All right, admittedly, we don't know exactly where that is. And then we've got the Temple Precinct. Now, where exactly is the Temple Precinct? What are the limits of the Temple Precinct? Because if we can't walk into the Temple Precinct unless we're in a fit state, we need to know where the limits are. Where are the limits of the Temple Precinct? City of David. Hmm? City of David. Where's that coming from? Yeah? This is a hearing aid. It doesn't tell me anything about it. <laughs> Everything comes in here wherever it's coming from. Yes, say again. the city of David. Well, no, the temple precinct is much smaller than the city of David. The temple precinct is a specific building inside, or actually next to what we think of now as the city of David. We don't know the exact boundaries of the city of David. Right? We, we know where we think the temple roughly was, right? It's somewhere up on that hill. But there were two temples, there was Solomon's temple and there was Ezra's temple. We know that Ezra's temple was smaller than Solomon's temple. So which is the holy bit? The Solomon bit or the Ezra bit inside it? We know that Herod built Herod's temple. That's why I say it's a bit of show-off. Right? Herod built Herod's temple in order to make a most fabulous building in Jerusalem. Right? He was a, a show-off builder, Herod. And in order not, because, I mean, Herod could not, of course, knock down the temple and build a new one. That would have upset a lot of people, right? So what he had to do was he built his temple outside the existing temple, right? Wider, taller, higher, you know, outside. And then when he got it completely built, his workmen went in one night, possibly more nights than that, and pulled out the old temple. And people kind of woke up the next morning and there was the new temple. Right? Fabulous piece of engineering. Marvellous. But which is the holy bit then? The old temple or the new temple? Herod's precinct or not? The western wall is a relic of Herod's show-off stuff. Is it holy or is it not holy? If we could figure out a way to get inside the western wall so that we had our backs to it, so we were nearer to the holy of holies, would that feel better or not? No, we've got so hung up now with standing with our noses up against a wall that we can't bear the idea we wouldn't have a wall in front of us. I mean, there'd be nothing to stick pieces of paper into. <laughs> right? So, but anyway, we've got the idea, haven't we? We've got the Holy of Holies. It's a holier spot. We don't know exactly where it is. Then we've got the Temple Precinct, the next holiest place. We don't know exactly where that is. What's the next holiest thing? In this concentric circle model, what's the next holiest thing? After the temple? No, no, that's inside the temple. We don't know exactly where any of the bits were inside the temple. Hmm? The city, exactly, Jerusalem. Ir Hapodesh, the, 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 the holy city. There's no two ways about it. It's the holy city, for goodness sake. And the boundaries of the holy city are? The wall. Oh, the ones that the Turks built in the 16th century. Those walls. The Turks are going to tell us what's holy. Why is those bits holy? You know the slogan? Jerusalem, the indivisible, eternal capital of the Jewish people. Which bits? All the bits we choose to clip on or just some other bits? Which bits are indivisible? The new suburbs, the old suburbs, the original suburbs? David's kingdom, David's city, the Temple Mount, East Jerusalem, West Jerusalem, North Jerusalem, South Jerusalem? Is Bayat Vagan part of the indivisible capital of the Jewish people? 
Is Yad Vashem part of the indivisible capital of the Jewish people? And if so, who says so? And why? If we keep clipping bits onto Jerusalem till we get to Tel Aviv, does that become part of the indivisible capital of the Jewish people? It's a slogan, folks. It means nothing. Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem. We don't know the boundaries of the city of Jerusalem in terms of holiness. We know for sure that the holy city is the next holy place after the temple in which was the Holy of Holies. But we don't know the boundaries. All right, let's not worry about that. What's the next holiest place? The next ring. Hmm? Somebody say? The land of Israel. Exactly, Eretz Israel. Easy. The land of Israel. The holy land, for goodness sakes. No, no, no dispute there. Land of Israel. And the boundaries are? <laughs> we haven't got a clue. So, folks, there you have it. Right? And what's the next holiest place after the land of Israel? Not Orange County, no. The next holiest place after the land of Israel in the Jewish mind is everywhere else. Everywhere else. So that is the mindset model of holiness in terms of geography. It's very precise. Holy of Holies, spot in the middle. The temple precinct round it. Jerusalem round that. The land of Israel round that. The rest of the world. Emanations of intensity of holiness. The land of Israel, by the way, holy just because it's the land of Israel. Not because of what happened here and what happened there, that this particular place is holier than that particular place and Hebron's holier than Sfat and Sfat's holier than, than Tel Aviv and whatever. Right? The land of Israel, the land of Israel. That's all you need to know. Right? Jews um, find the land of Israel significant because it was gifted to the Jews, not because of what happened there. As you all know, the most significant thing that happened to the Jews happened outside Israel anyway, at Sinai. Middle of the desert. Do we care about that spot? No, we don't. Right? We're not reverencing places where things happened. Right? Nobody on, well, I was going to say nobody on Purim goes off to Shushan. It's not entirely true. Across the road to me lives a highly assimilated Iranian Jew. Um, he's married to a, um, a, a Christian Iranian woman, um, and they have a son. Uh, because they couldn't decide what they do, they're bringing him up as a Muslim. Anyway, uh, it's a complicated family. Uh, but on one Purim day, he saw me coming out of my house in fancy dress. Uh, I think Henry VIII or something. And he, he said to me, what are you doing? Because even for me, that's surprising. He said, what are you doing? I said, it's Purim today. He said, is it? I didn't know. And, and you do Purim? I said, yes, absolutely I do. He said, but how can you do Purim? I go, what do you mean, how can I do Purim? He said, well, how can you do Purim? I go, well, we go to Shul. We go, no, no, no. He said, yes, but you can't go to the tomb of Mordecai and Esther. I didn't know you could. But apparently in Iran, that's the thing to do. Because the tomb of Mordecai Nest is just up the road. Right? How strange is that? Right? So, I mean, people, you know, Jews do have spots which are of interest. I mean, rather ghoulishly, uh, Auschwitz is becoming one of those places that Jews have to go visit. Right? I can think of a few spots I'd put above that on my list, but nevertheless, it seems to be what's becoming the case. Right? But nevertheless, this idea of concentric circles and developing levels of holiness certainly fixes it. But the land of Israel is not defined. 
Some of you may know that when the rabbinate, before the founding of the State of Israel, was discussing the rules for the State of Israel, um, a debate sprung up, because as you know, in uh, some uh, communities in the diaspora, the tradition is to keep two days of festivals. And in, in Israel, they keep one day of festivals. I think reform communities here keep one day as a rule. Is that, is that right? Well, yeah? schizophrenic. Okay, <laughs> right. Well, keep a few, you know, whatever. Anyway, um, they pointed out that Eilat, of course, was never part of the land of Israel. Remember, those Israelites who slept through the Negev, they weren't in the land of Israel. That wasn't part of the land of Israel. So Eilat is not part of the land of Israel. So the rabbis were proposing that in Eilat they should keep two days of festival. Right? And they decided in the end it was going to be too complicated and just everywhere in the state would keep one day. All right. and, and probably they realised too that in Eilat the chances of anybody keeping one day of festival were so slim there's no point in trying to make them keep two. Right? But anyway, one way or another, right, the, the land of Israel as the Holy Land is of course not to be confused at all with the state of Israel. The state of Israel is a completely different business. The state of Israel is a political entity. Now, folks, your chance to do some speaking. I want you to tell me what you find wrong about the state of Israel. What do you think the state of Israel has done wrong? Okay, so you're objecting to the democracy of Israel. That's not a democracy when you have a minority making the... How does the minority make those decisions? By being in control of... Uh, How do they get control? Coalition. They're elected. Okay, so you don't like the democracy of Israel. Good. Anything else? What else don't you like about Israel? Actually, you weren't saying that about Israel, really. You were saying that about the Haredim. Yeah, that's not about Israel. I want to know about Israel. S sorry? On the parliamentary system, yes, which is a bit too democratic. Yeah, yeah. Let's have a nice open system like Republicans and Democrats, where people are really free to make up their minds. Let's do that. Yes, much better. Yes. All this business of everybody starting their own party. It's like Jews, isn't it? Goodness, how could you do that? Right. You're going to say. Ah, what a wonderfully American thing to say. And you don't even sound American. <laughs> right. Yes. Okay, you, you've learned fast. You got here and, and picked that up. Um, okay, no separation of, of, of church and state or religion and state. Okay. You, you'd, rather, you'd rather Israel was less Jewish? Well, then it's very hard to... What makes it a Jewish country? Yeah, quite. So you wouldn't rather it was less Jewish. But you'd rather it was less Jewish. Okay, good. What else don't we like about Israel? We're getting on well here. We're getting some good, firm opinions. Don't like democracy. Don't want it to be Jewish. What else don't we want about Israel? Yes? I think they can't get married unless they can prove they're Jewish. Oh, you can't go into Israel unless you can prove you're Jewish? No, I have children living in Israel. Uh, his wife is from <clears throat> Russia, and her name is Epstein, and she couldn't prove she was Jewish. Right, right, right. Well, this is, um, this is a, a real problem, isn't it? Um, as you know, when the State of Israel came into being, uh, the law of return was very quickly enacted. Um, after all, the State of Israel came into being in the shadow of the aftermath of the Shoah. The law of return was enacted, which enabled all Jews 
to go back to, to go and live in Israel. Go, go back to, that's already a propagandistic term, isn't it? But to go and live in Israel. Um, what constitutes a Jew? Right? The state enacted, strangely enough, a law which respected Hitler's definition of a Jew. The law of return takes the definition of a Jew from the Nuremberg laws. Hitler decides who is a Jew for the state of Israel. Why? Because, of course, the state of Israel was trying to resolve the problem of the Jews who were displaced and suffered by Hitler. I mean, how appalling it would be for somebody who'd spent, you know, the last three years in a concentration camp to turn up and go, can I come in? And they go, well, technically, no. All right? So the law of return used Hitler's definition of a Jew in order to determine who could return to the state as a Jew. Right? But that's not really sustainable 50, 60, 70 years into the future. And not surprisingly, we're back to your religious um, uh, establishment, and I explained why the reform didn't get in in time to make a, an impact on this. But the religious establishment is uncomfortable with this. I mean, I guess probably most of us are uncomfortable with this definition. Right? And so there's now a, a strong contention about what constitutes a Jew. As you probably know, all the debate about what constitutes a Jew is actually a debate about what constitutes a rabbi. Right? That's really where we're starting from. The, the argument really is, who, can, who is a rabbi? Right? Because nobody's disputing anybody who pops out of a Jewish womb. Doesn't matter how from, not from. Well, actually, I say nobody. Israel has interestingly enacted a law that allows it to discriminate against Jews who are born of Jewish mothers. This is not halachic. All right? But if somebody formally professes a different religion, specifically in this case, um, Christianity, that's the law case that brought, uh, brought this about, but if they formally commit to a different religion, they are not automatically have right of access to Israel uh, as, uh, as a citizen. Right. Now, then there's a second problem. What about somebody who converts to Judaism outside of Israel? And this is where the debate comes about who is a rabbi. Because everybody recognises you can't have people converting right, left and centre according to whoever wants to convert them. You've got to have some kind of system. Somebody's got to be in charge of this business. All right? If uh, the three of us get together and we go, okay, let's convert a couple of people as they're walking down the street, you go, who the hell are you to do that? You've got no right. right? We'd want to know, what are our credentials for doing this? What rights have we got? And so the debate lies as to who constitutes a rabbi, as to who can perform a conversion. That's the discussion. Right? And obviously, the Orthodox Jews don't accept progressive rabbis as rabbis. Therefore, they don't accept their rights to make converts. Right. You can have even more discussions about the nature and the process and so on and so forth of the conversion, but that's a secondary matter. The, the essential issue is, is this guy a rabbi or this woman a rabbi? Do they have a right to make this kind of decision? If I don't think they do, then I can't recognise their converts. What you describe, though, is a secondary matter or rather a different matter, should I say. Um, as you know, um, Israel has accommodated over the course of the last um, few years, really, a huge number of people from the former Soviet Union, something like a million or more, um, most of whom have some kind of Jewish provenance. I say most of whom because about a third of them don't. About a third of them are no doubt about it. They have no claim to be Jewish. They don't pretend to be Jewish. They're not Jewish. They came in because they are uh, related to somebody who could come in, 
right? That's a second issue which Israel's going to have to get its head around because there are a very large proportion of non-Jews in the state of Israel, right? And, and, and growing. That, by the way, is why Israel is so concerned to somehow or other keep, keep this Jewish thing right, right? Problems with church and state and so on. How do you, how do you get Jews in, right? So um, the problem with former Soviet Union folk is that in the former Soviet Union, Jews were defined as Jews because their fathers were Jewish. And it was, of course, an ethnic identity. It was a national identity. You were Jewish or you were Ukrainian or Georgian or, you know, whatever. And so if your father was Jewish, your passport was stamped Jewish. And that, as you all know, is contrary to the original halachic model, where it's the mother who's Jewish that makes the difference. So you have people who experienced all kinds of discrimination and difficulty as a Jew, who joined the Refusenik movement, who you know, got involved in all of that stuff. They struggled to arrive in Israel, and they're accepted because of the Nuremberg laws. Their father's Jewish, so the law of return lets them come in. But then, of course, the religious authorities say, but you're not Jewish. Right? And they're not wrong by that definition. So what we have here is an incredible pressure cooker of process, which is, in a very short space of time comparatively, putting the state and the Jewish people under this intense pressure of trying to square up what constitutes a Jew and a rabbi all at once in a very short time. You understand the halachic system was a system which was designed for a large, slow world. Right? Where people who lived in Moscow were centuries away from people who lived in Mississippi. Right? Something that happened in Moscow didn't arrive in Mississippi for years. Right? A large, slow world. The halachic system was a brilliant system for keeping us all pretty well in shape. I don't know if you realize quite how miraculous it is that a Jew can turn up on one side of the planet or the other and find people doing stuff which is more or less recognisable to any of us. It's astonishing. How come we didn't fall apart? We didn't have any central authority. There was nobody telling us what to do. How amazing that things stayed broadly in line. Not even stuff that happens in synagogue, in public spaces, in, at home. The Seder, the Friday night meal. You know, people turn up, they, they know what's going on here. How did that happen? That was the halachic system that held that broadly in shape. It worked wonderfully for a large, slow world. So some rabbi in Mississippi wanted to change something. He made his decision. But it never became binding on the Jewish people until eventually the rabbi in Moscow also accepted it. Or they could have a long argument about it and eventually they'd come to a consensus after 100 years. And that would become what we now did. That was now the halakha. But now suddenly we're in a small, fast world. What happens in Moscow is immediately relayed to Mississippi and those guys respond to it. You know what that means? It means nobody's going to do anything in Moscow. Because the minute they say anything, do anything, make a decision, the folk in Mississippi are going to whip it up and start using it before they've even had a chance to think about it. So the halakha system has resulted now in an incredible freezing over a fear of saying anything other than no to be on the safe side. Right? It's a real problem because most people don't know how the halakhic system works. 
So they think the minute somebody says something, that gives them permission to follow that. It doesn't. It's just a view of this guy. Right? And since most of us are looking for permission, right, we're not looking for constraints. We pick out our bits of permission everywhere. Nobody wants to give you any for fear that you might misuse it. All right? So what happens with the state of Israel then is this real problem about how to accommodate and define Jews, how to move and shift the definitions of a Jew. Now, in fact, there are some very exciting things happening. I don't know if you know about the Nehman Commission, for example, which has established conversion um, centers where people can be taught by their own rabbis in their different denominations. Right. And only the conversion interview is conducted by the rabbinate, the Israeli rabbinate, that is, Orthodox rabbis. And they are under general guidelines not to challenge the conversion too severely. That is, not to challenge, for example, a reform convert with too many technical halakhic questions. Because there's an attempt to include. Now, that system has been challenged by another segment of the rabbinate. Because this is live stuff, hot stuff. To be frank, guys, if the Jewish people said, eh, it doesn't matter, I'd really be unhappy. Because it does matter. It really does matter. And for the first time, for a very long time in Jewish history, there's real virtue in being Jewish. There's people running forward, going, well, I'm kind of Jewish, I want to be Jewish, can I be Jewish, right? Jews are a bit bemused by the guy. Oh, why would anybody want to? I've been trying to get away from it for the last 40 years. You know, no, people want to be Jewish, right? But it's actually true. And there's a stack of people around the world who've realized that if they're Jewish, it gets them into Israel. So it's not surprising if Israel is a little bit ginger about some of that. Meanwhile, of course, in Israel, you have a huge number of non-Jews. Of course, the indigenous Arabs, large numbers of visiting and resident Christians, Increasing numbers of Mormons, right? And of course, all of these former Soviet Union folk. Something like 20 to 25% of the citizenry of Israel is non-Jewish. Right? 20 to 25% of the citizenry of Israel is non-Jewish. that include the Arab population? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the Israeli Arab population. And of course, a large number, they're not citizens, but a large number of guest workers, of transient workers, Filipinos and, and so forth, also there. So it's a very, very high proportion of the Israeli population are not Jews. But they don't give all the citizens. I'm sorry? Well, I'm not sure that that's entirely true. Is that something you're not happy with? Yes, explain more. Well, like those that you included in the citizenry, the um, indigenous Arabs and some of the Christians that live there and work there, um, I don't think they have the same um, legal rights to vote in some of the elections and... Okay, they do. They do. Um, they have absolutely the same rights to, to vote, to own property, and so on. The one thing which, of course, I think is an unintentional... Look, I'm just a kind of optimist, and I tend to smile at people all the time, right? Um, which makes me quite Californian, really. I've taken this habit, you know, of greeting people I don't know. It's very odd, because they, they, they smile back. It's very strange. But anyway, um, in general... 
I, I don't like to impute to people negative motives unless I have good evidence for it. Right? Um, Israel decided early on that Arabs, Arab, Arab Israelis, would not need to serve in the army. Okay? That includes both Christians and Muslims, would not need to serve in the army. Therefore, they would not be conscripted. Now, this was driven by one of two reasons, depending on who you spoke to. Right? Either they were potentially a fifth column, you didn't know whose side they were on, and so on and so forth, which is rather negative, but understandable. Or you didn't want to constrain them to be in the business of fighting against their own brothers, as it were. That was, seemed unpleasant. There they were on the other side of the border. You didn't force them into the business of fighting against their own brothers, which seems more positive. Right? Either way, they're not forced to serve in the army. Of course, there are Arabs who do serve in the army, and the Druze and the Bedouin are particularly well known for doing so. Right? Um, Christians, less so, and Muslims, hardly at all. Right? Although there are a few exceptions to that. Um, but generally speaking, they're not conscripted, so they can choose to serve in the army or not. I think the unintended consequence, it may have been an intended consequence, but I don't think so. I think the unintended consequence is that serving in the army in Israel is a really important part of your resume. Right? If you go for a job or whatever, people are going to say, so what unit were you in? What did you do? Do you know, oh, do you know so-and-so? You know, all that kind of stuff. And if you didn't serve in the army, therefore you find yourself set back quite significantly. Not in terms of getting a flat or that kind of stuff, but in terms of getting jobs, certainly. Very difficult. Right? Um, and it's also true that Arab villages and towns, and there are several Arab villages and towns in Israel, are less well connected to a range of services, water, electricity, and so forth, right? But this is partially because the uh, Israeli, partially because the Israeli government did not want to overturn, overturn local leaders. Local leaders were very insistent on their own semi-autonomy. And so, to some degree, it's been a problem on both sides. Right? But in terms of simple civil rights, the right to vote, the right to own property, the right to move around the country freely, all of those rights, the right to come and go as you please, all of those are guaranteed to all of Israel's citizens, Jew and non-Jew alike, categorically. Right? Um, Do they travel on an Israeli passport? They can travel. On an Israeli passport. Yes, of course. They're Israeli citizens. And indeed, they have members uh, of, of the Knesset elected. I mean, there are Arab members of the Knesset who are avowedly resistant to the continued existence of the State of Israel. They're in the Knesset. And, and all Knesset proceedings are expressed in two languages, Arabic and Hebrew. Right? And all signs are up in Hebrew and Arabic. All street signs, all road signs, uh, not street signs so much, but uh, road signs and um, uh, the banknotes and so on and so forth, Arabic and Hebrew. Products in supermarkets. I'm sorry? Products in the supermarkets. Yeah, I, th I think, everything. yes, everything is. Everything the is. stamps, the money. Yeah, yeah, Th those things, th that's there. Of course, as I say, there are different pressures, and as we all know, there can be discriminations which are not formally constructed, which nevertheless can be agreed between people, as it were, and come about informally, um, which almost certainly are there. But I don't think that's part of the essential structure of the state. Um, until recently, of course, where growing distrust and fear has intensified 
a desire to separate and keep away. And uh, Israeli Arabs are also caught in the uncertainty as to whether they should perceive themselves as Israelis or Palestinians. Because this is seen to be a zero-sum game. You're one or the other. It's really difficult for an Israeli Arab to say, I'm not a Palestinian. All right? So does Israel, has, is Israel trying to figure out a way to allow Israeli Arabs to constitute an identity which makes sense of that dilemma? I'm not sure that it's doing that. So, folks, we haven't got to come up with anything very solid. What about things that Israel's done that you don't approve of? The settlements. The settlements. Sorry? The settlements. The settlements. Okay, so that's... Um, uh, and what's wrong with the settlements? Well, it's beyond these 67 borders. It's created international problems. It's uh, certainly impacted the way the world sees Israel. And that's not good for Israel. Right, so you'd rather they'd stayed behind the 67 borders? What's clever about the 67 borders? What's clever about Those are the established, recognized borders. Who established them? Who recognized them? Israel was established by the UN, right? Yeah, but that wasn't the 67 borders. The UN established different borders. The 67 borders was the armistice line after the War of Independence. They were never recognized. There's nothing clever about the 67 borders except their glorious indefensibility. And, and furthermore, a rather interesting thing, folks. If, if, if we are interested in Israel as the Holy Land, the holy bit of Israel is where the settlements are. Judea. Is what's called by the right wing, Judea and Shomron, uh, called by the left, left wing, the West Bank. Right? That's the Jewish bit of Israel. That's where the patriarchs strolled about. Right? They didn't pop over to Tel Aviv ever. Right? Joshua didn't have a flat in Netanya. It wasn't happening. Right? It was, the, it was the, the West Bank which was the Jewish Bank. In fact, if we wanted to do a historical deal with the Palestinians, we should say to the Palestinians, you know what? You guys are defended from the Philistines. Have the coast. You have Ashdod, Ashkelon. You have that lot. That's where Philistines lived. We'll take the West Bank. Let's do a population exchange. That's our bit. Of course, nobody's really interested in history. They just pretend to be. Yeah. I disagree on your comment about the 67 border because that border, I believe, was a very defensible border because of the geography, the terrain. Well, not where it was nine miles wide, it wasn't. Israel was nine miles wide at one point. Yes, it was. And that was in danger of being cut in half. That was, that was right. And Jerusalem was exposed on a point but which could easily have been cut off. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, it's the 67 borders were not defensible. The Jordan River wasn't in the 67 Post, borders. Hmm? Post-67 border. No, the 67 borders um, were not the Jordan River. Oh, I'm sorry, you're talking about the, the borders after the 67 war. Yes. Oh, I'm so sorry. You were talking about the borders presumably before the 67 war. Yeah, that's what were indefensible. Right? He was saying he didn't want building to be done in the territories which were conquered by Israel in the 67 war. Is that, is that right? Okay. That's what we mean by the settlements, whether that was in Gaza, previously in Sinai, in the West Bank, in Golan, all of those things. Yeah? That, that, yes? Right. There were right. settlements being built on the east side of the Jordan River, which is beyond the 
No. No. That's the, that's the kingdom of Jordan. There are no settlements being built on the east side of the Jordan River. Unless the Jordanians are building them. And the West Bank was relinquished by the Jordanian. Well, <laughs> the West Bank was relinquished. The Jordanians should never have had it in the first place. Right? What we have to recognize is that in the, in the 1948 uh, War of Independence, the United Nations partitioned the state in probably a fairly unworkable partition setup, but then everything was going to be unworkable because, as the former Chief Rabbi of Britain, Lord Jacobovitz, said, two rights often make a wrong. Right? And what you had here was two rights. The Arabs had rights and the Jews had rights. And they had horribly been promised everything by everybody, each side. So, of course, as it came closer and closer to the possibility of something happening, neither side was very happy with what was going on. However, the Jews had their backs to the wall and they said, OK, we'll take whatever you can give us. The Arabs didn't feel the same level of, of, uh, of you know, being right on the edge of it. Uh, and therefore, they didn't want to take whatever they could be given. They wanted to take what they felt was right and fair, their territory. Right. Uh, however, eventually, the United Nations worked out a partition plan, uh, which involved all kinds of stupid borders yeah. and crossovers and, and enclaves and whatever, and Jerusalem as an international city. There had, by the way, previously been two other international cities, Danzig, right, what's now Gdansk, and, uh, and Tangier. That didn't work very well. But nevertheless, they were going to try again with Jerusalem. Right? And that was the deal. And in 1948, on Yom Atzmut, 1948, Israel declared independence. The British withdrew. Israel declared independence. And the Arabs said, stand out of the way. We're going to get them out. And, and they were unsuccessful. And at the end of all of that, and the smoke settled, the Jews had largely pushed the Arabs out of many of the territories which had been allocated to them in the partition plan, um, so that the uh, Jews had made uh, the Israeli territory a little more coterminous and sensible. So some of these enclaves and crossover points and so on were just kind of swept back and tied it up. Even then, however, the, the, the borders of the state of Israel, as they became in 1948, were stupid borders. As I say, at one point, nine miles wide. At another point, Jerusalem kind of sticking out into the middle of the West Bank, which easily could be cut off. And only half of Jerusalem, of course, just the west half, the east half was uh, in, in Arab hands. Right? And that's how the thing rested in 1948. The Jordanians had marched into the West Bank in order to try and hold that territory. The Egyptians had marched up into Gaza in order to hold that territory. And so when things finished in 1948, the Egyptians continued in control of Gaza and Jordan continued in control of the West Bank. Right? They weren't supposed to be there. They were supposed to be Palestinian territories. But the Palestinians were saying, we're not going to start a state on this stupid place like this. This isn't a proper state. We want our rights. The Jordanians said, fine, okay, we'll look after this for you. The, uh, the Egyptians said, fine, we'll look after Gaza for you, not a problem. And so it continued for 17 years or more, 19 years. Right? And nobody gave the Palestinians anything. Neither the Jordanians, nor the Egyptians, nor the, nor the Israelis. The Palestinians told, mind your own business, just keep quiet. The vast majority of them lived in refugee camps, scattered all around and were kept in refugee camps, not least by the United Nations. Which felt a bit guilty, to be frank, because it had mucked up appallingly. And still wanted to somehow or other resolve this business, because it promised the Palestinians something and there was nothing. And they felt bad about it. 
And meanwhile, the Egyptians and the Jordanians had no intention of helping them out. And the Jordanians didn't want to make these Palestinians into Jordanian citizens because if they did, that's the end of the aspiration to a place called Palestine. And the Egyptians similarly didn't want to make these Palestinians into Egyptians. They wanted to keep them as, as refugees because they were supposed to have their own place, for goodness sake. Well, from a Jewish perspective, this looks like a horrible piece of, um, of cynical manipulation of a bunch of impoverished uh, refugees. But at the same time, it was a genuine attempt that the Palestinians should have a place. In 1967, the Jews, uh, the Israelis, conquered the West Bank, conquered uh, Gaza and Sinai, and found themselves suddenly in possession of all these lands with all these Palestinians. What to do? Well, of course, the Arabs were continuing to resist and resist. There continued to be conflict. Uh, and therefore, any attempt on the part of the Israelis to create a resolution or create a, a, a compromise was rejected by the Arabs who felt that they couldn't see why they should have to compromise. And the Palestinians now had absorbed the identity of being the world's leading refugee group. And they saw no reason why they should compromise on that. And I understand that, completely I understand that. And the Israelis were so busy feeling sorry for themselves that they couldn't see that they had to feel sorry for somebody else. Because the Jews are always going around going, oh, you're Schweiz designing it. And they never realized that actually being an Israeli is a pretty hard place to be. And so they felt sorry for themselves, had no space to feel sorry for anybody else. And they ended up saying things about the Palestinians which were just shocking. Shocking in terms of how Jews should talk about other people. Well, don't blame the settlers and don't blame the Haredim. Any regular, ordinary Israeli was doing it. These people, right, they're not really a proper nation. There's no such thing as a Palestinian. They don't really want their own country. They're primitive, you don't understand. They couldn't run their own place. Right? The kinds of things we'd be shocked if anybody said about Jews, people were prepared to say about Palestinians. There may even be American Jews who are prepared to say such things about Palestinians. I'm sure not here. But to speak about Palestinians in a way that we would find reprehensible if somebody dared talk about Jews in that way. That is a failure on the part of the state of Israel. To find a language to speak honorably about the Palestinians. It happened occasionally, flickered and then died. If you can't speak honourably about the people with whom you have to negotiate, then there's no hope of getting any kind of negotiation going. And the idea that somehow you can crush the spirit of the Palestinians, or that you can buy them off, if we make the Palestinian areas economically successful so that they're wealthy, they won't have anything to lose, they'll have too much to lose and therefore they won't fight. Do we know nothing about the Jewish aspiration for our homeland? Haven't we learned anything about how the Jews can't be crushed just by being crushed? Do we think it's special about the Jews? Everybody else can be crushed, but the Jews go on forever? We don't seem to want to understand that in many ways the Palestinians are the mirror image of the Jews. And by the way, the Palestinians have cultivated that far more successfully than we've realized it. So you will notice there are always six million Palestinians. Always. Doesn't matter how many are born, how many die, there will always be six million Palestinians. 
They are the people with the diaspora. They are the people without a homeland. They are the people just yearning to return. They have adopted all of the language of Zionists and Jews and applied it to themselves with singular success because they're not wrong. And therefore you find this going into even more unpleasant territories where now the language of the Holocaust is being used. So the Palestinians are in ghettos. Gaza is a big ghetto. And genocide is being applied against the Palestinians. It's all nonsense. All nonsense. But the Jews don't have any way to respond to that because we don't recognise that the Palestinians have rights to have rights. Yes, sir. Under the Egypt and, and Jordan. Amongst the Palestinians. Right. Okay, so Iraq, for example... Yeah, no, I understand what you mean. Iraq, for example, had had its own independent history. So it was its own country, and therefore anybody arriving was clearly an occupier, right? But the Palestinians have never had their own country. Therefore, they can't talk about somebody in that place as more an occupier than somebody else. You know, they've always had folk running their affairs for them. Yeah, for 19 years, yes. What was any dialogue, any... Between the Egyptians and the Palestinians? Yes. Uh, not really, no. They just controlled it and, and continued to say to the Palestinians, don't worry, we're on your side, we'll continue to fight battles to try and get your country back. And, of course, that happened again in, in 1967, then 1973. We're still on your side, we'll still try and get your country back for you. Um, and so the Jordanians and the Egyptians rather cynically posed as... Um, champions for the Palestinians and the Palestinians frankly were so devoid of champions that they were grateful for whoever they could get or they were cynical about kind of uh, occupiers of every stripe so everybody's an occupier right but they're not really very accustomed to casting off occupiers because they've had nothing but occupiers all the time but by the time we're into the 70s and 80s the Palestinians are really now expressing themselves as a national freedom uh, liberation movement Right? And um, people like Golda Meir are saying there's no such thing as Palestinians. It's not helping. Yeah, but right? she heard it from King Hussein. And uh, the Prime Minister in Jordan. Well, King Hussein has own... that English already said it last week. The, the Palestinians are invented people. Yes, well, that's right. And just like people would say that the Jews are an invented people too. No, oh, yes, they will say that. Palestine. There was never a king of Palestine. There was never a flag of Palestine and so forth. Yeah, there was never a flag of Israel either. Oh, there was. Star of David is not an invented uh, symbol. The Star of David became a Jewish symbol in the 17th century. Fine, but it was the, king, uh, the shield of David. It wasn't a flag. But there was a shield of David. It wasn't a flag and it's got nothing to do with David. Okay, show me a 
equivalent of the same for the Palestinian place. I'm sorry. The Star of David has got nothing to do with David and it was never a flag. The Zionist movement had to invent a flag. Right. There were no flags for the Jewish people since they wandered through the wilderness in the 12 tribes. The Star of David has got nothing to do with David. The shield of David is not the Star of David. No, the shield of David, it was never near David. We have no evidence that the Star of David got anything to do with the Jews until about the 1700s, when it starts to emerge that the, the Star of David and the Star of Solomon, we don't hear so much about the Star of Solomon, the Star of Solomon is the pentangle, the five-pointed star, and the Star of David is the six-pointed star. And these were mystical symbols used by Christians and Jews and others, right, in order to ward off evil and do whatever any mystical folk wanted to do. My es the essence of my... Uh answer is that tell me how that was a nationality of Palestinian before the 1967 war. Their own leaders did not claim it. Oh, they the did. The Jordanians and everybody else, never, nobody claimed it. They claimed they have a right to certain elements of no. Israel, uh, the Palestine, I, but not as I'm, nationality I'm, or I'm, as a people. I, I, don't know what, I don't know what nationality or people means in this context. There was an aspiration on the part of the Arabs living in and around the land of Israel to have their own independent country Absolutely. in 1948. Right. Those people are a group of people. They have a national aspiration. To my mind, that makes a nationality. And if they didn't have a flag, it was an oversight. They could have made one. Right? But a flag doesn't make a nation. A flag makes a flag. Right? And there are lots of nations that didn't have flags, and they're still nations. A flag is a European preoccupation with flags, and then everybody else has to have one because the Europeans expect you to have occupation one. Or I'm telling you, the other symbols and aspects of why these were not recognized as people or a nation. And please answer to that, that the only leaders in the Arab world did not see them as a nation. It's only after 67 with the PLO where this has started to change. Okay, good. If, I mean, I don't agree with you, but fine. Let's accept that. So Israel is accepting that too and trying to negotiate. But the more Israel is giving, the more it's illusionary is becoming because they want more and more. Well, I don't know who they is. Okay. I'm talking First about Palestinian. Yeah, but, but you see, I, 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 that kind of generalization about a whole millions of people, I think, is not helpful. Right? Is not helpful. Because there's a myriad of opinions Absolutely. amongst Palestinians, just like there is amongst Israelis and more alakat kama vakama amongst Jews. Right? So they, it's not helpful in these kinds of discussions. What you're constantly doing is you're looking for allies, partners, and interlocutors. People you can talk to. The fact still remains that one way or another, sooner or later, right, somebody is going to have to make some kinds of compromises or they're going to slog it out forever. There's the two options. Right? The Palestinians are not going to back down. The Israelis are not going to back down. Sooner or later, they're going to have to make compromises. From time to time, rare time to rare time, it looks like maybe something starts to happen, and then they break away again. Right? Sometimes this has been the Palestinians. Sometimes it's been the Israelis. But we have to recognize that there's an asymmetry of power here. The Israelis have all the power, and the Palestinians are the powerless, weak ones. The, the Israeli Jewish narrative that the Jews are weak and the Palestinians are strong is just not true. The Palestinians do not have one 
tank or aircraft. They are not strong. And our talk about how embattled and endangered Israel is, and there are occasions and ways in which it is, but there are other ways in which it absolutely isn't. And a dispute between the strong and the weak can either be fought on the basis of who is strongest, or it can be fought on the basis of trying to be fair. That's the challenge. And no amount of discussion about whether the Palestinians became a group of people in 1967 or three weeks ago doesn't matter. It's a distraction. And it's another attempt on the part of the Jews and the Israelis to diminish the need to talk to this group because they're not a real group. They want to make peace. Israel is the only element in the Middle East that wants to look to make peace. I grew up there. I know the people and I talk to people. And so I know it. Let me tell you a story. I, I know that the opposite too from why uh, a few discussions with the Palestinians. Right. They are waiting to destroy the state of okay, you played any opportunity they have. Right. You played your trump card. Now I'm going to play mine. Please. Okay. Your trump card is I grew up there. I know it. You don't. Okay. I'm going to play my trump card now by telling you a story. Uh, a few years ago at the Limud conference, I was giving a talk about Poland and the Jews, specifically focused on the Shoah, on the Jews of Poland in the Shoah. And I'm explaining what I know, and there's a guy, elderly guy in the front of the audience, who suddenly puts up his hand and says, I was a hidden Jew in Warsaw during the Holocaust. I take a gulp at this point. Who am I to talk about the Jews of Poland right when this guy was there? And he says, I just want to understand something that you just said. He asked me a question, right? And I responded to the question. Oh, okay. He said, uh-huh. And now, as, the, as the, the session goes on, of course, I'm keeping an eye on him out of the corner of my eye. I'm seeing if everything I say, whether he's nodding or frowning or scowling or agreeing or whatever, because I'm worrying about him, right? Here's a guy, he's playing his trump card. I was there, I know, Right? And yet he's, he seems to be listening with great uh, interest to what I'm saying. At the end of the lecture, he came up to me. He said, that was really fascinating. I said to him, I'm so impressed by the humility with which you seem to listen to what I have to say. He said, look, I was a hidden child. What do I know about the Jews of Poland? You have studied the overview of the thing. You've got a better perspective than I have. And I say that to you, sir. Growing up in a place doesn't make you an expert on it. It makes you an expert on Can the I bit of it that you grew up in. Story? Uh, yes, yes. Right here in this synagogue, about five years ago, there were two men, <coughs> Palestinians, who came and, to ask for collections for their congregations. And they spoke about their school, the only one in the West Bank, a, a school for peace. At the end, I asked them only two questions. One, what song, songs for peace do you teach your children? And they said, none. In Israel, there are so many songs for peace okay, yeah. in comparison. Number two, I asked them, what books do you teach in your school for peace? And they used the same kind of books that the Palestinian authority is giving in which 
two soldiers been killed and three other Jews killed, how many Jews were killed? I'm sorry to tell you that. This is the face of the Palestinian. You just have to watch some, some of the propaganda that goes on and the brainwashing that they do to their own people. Okay. This is what the fear for the Israelis. That is why the... I, I understand the fear of Israelis. So I, don't ask them to, to put that, their, their neck where you are not willing to do. No, I understand the fear of Israelis. By the okay. way, when you say they, right, I should just tell you, of course, that my daughter is saved in the Israeli army also. Right? So it's not so much a they. Okay? Um, but uh, what I would say is this. And she didn't know anything about what the army was up to either because she was in it. All right? Um, the, what I would say is this. You ask those two questions, by the way, they don't persuade me of anything at all. I have no idea, and nor do you, what songs do they teach their children in school? I asked them. No, you ask them, do they teach them songs about peace? Exactly. And you say, Israelis do. So what does this tell us? It tells us about two school cultures. Uh, One set of schools teach songs, and the other set of schools, we don't know whether they teach songs or they don't teach songs. The Did you ask, song? well, which songs do they teach? Did you ask that? No. You assume that it's the same kind as these schools teach songs, so those schools must teach songs. Which songs do you teach? Are they songs of peace? Maybe they don't. Maybe they teach ancient... Palestinian romantic songs. I don't know what they teach. And when you say which textbooks do you use, which textbooks are available to them to use? This it was a special school for peace, for which they came here to ask for money. I'm sorry, sir. That is the reason. I'm getting, I'm getting overexcited, but because you're not hearing me. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I just, I just want to say one, one last thing about textbooks. Right. In an impoverished place, textbooks are not easily available. Therefore, you have to use the textbooks which are available. I know this because I grew up in 1950s London. And the textbooks we had were, I mean, they may not have been reprehensible, but they were useless. So a good teacher would use the textbook in order to explain why the textbook was useless. And nowadays, there are still kids in, in, in England who use textbooks which talk about, you know, pounds and tons and hundredweights and stuff like that, right? And, and, the, and the teacher has to say, well, nowadays, of course, we use uh, kilograms and, 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 you know, all that stuff. They have to explain because the books don't fit. They don't have any choice. What other books are there? If you said to them, there are two sets of uh, Arab textbooks. There's this one which teaches about peace, and there's that one which teaches negatively about the Jews. Which ones do you use? They go, oh, we use the negative ones. Then maybe I'm interested in what you have to say. But if you say there's one set of textbooks, do you use that one? I'd be very surprised to go, no, we'd rather not use any textbooks at all because there's some negative lines in it. Right? You've got to be very careful. You set up questions. It's like, did you, have you stopped beating your wife yet? Yes or no? I mean, don't give anybody a choice to come out of that. Because what you want to do is you want to reconfirm your conviction that they don't really want to help. Yes? So in the last two years, or five years, I've been to Israel and Ramallah twice. And I went into both uh, occasions um, on the assumption that Palestinians are not a monolithic people. They have political heads that have agendas for their own benefit. But the people, their human nature, attracts into democracy, humanity, compromise, and all of that. I had meetings in, in Chairman Arafat's office, which is still preserved for a meeting room for heads of state. I 
had I had meetings with the uh, American hedge fund manager that runs 80% of the economy as a model. I went to the Gaza border. I didn't go to Gaza. But I had some very high-level meetings. And everything I learned was that it is largely a monolithic thing. Largely a monolithic in thought. I, I asked the hedge fund manager, who is very American, he is American, literally American, but in his ways, if there was a, an honest vote, just in the West Bank, forget Gaza, because obviously that's not going to be Where do they stand? Where, do the, where does the population stand, genuinely and honestly? If they see eight, there'd be an 85% to 15% vote to wipe out Israel. That would be the consequence of the vote. And he had no agenda. He is, he is Palestinian. Um, and I came away from that, those instances that there is, and if you look at the patch on the Fatah symbol on their, well, their, their flag, or whatever you call mm -hmm. the, the mm -hmm. it's, it's Israel, all green. Yeah. And we ask very gentle questions like, well, okay, so whatever you compromise to get, will that be enough? And if you ask the right questions gently and subtly enough, the answer was not in the long run, but right now it'd be great. So I learned a lot, which is, it's very complicated to negotiate with somebody whose ultimate goal is not for your existence to be there. It is not a two-state solution in many of their minds, whether it's completely monolithic or I'm a large, large majority. And the one last note on the textbook issue, you, you take a, a poor, desperate people who have the values of what we think of as Jews, and, 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 and you say, this is, you can't afford to make your own textbooks, you can't afford anything, it's this, and it's horrible, or it's nothing, and teach them from scratch. I think Jews teach from scratch, and they get rid of the hatred and the bigotry. So I don't accept the, con the conclusion that, well, it's the only thing available, so therefore you must use it and teach around it. That's not what's happening, it doesn't have to happen. That's not, what, that's not sort of what I view the Jewish way. Not that that's monolithic either, I get that. So I, I don't know that I accept all of your premises, because some of it I, I learned from experience was probably there's a lot of grains of truth in, in, in this problem. And I'm not sure a two-state solution is on everyone's agenda. So let's see, we're, we're a little after 9 o'clock, so I'd love to give uh, our scholar a chance to respond, and maybe if we're engaged, maybe one more question, then if you have some time afterwards if people want to, so we can... No one has to be rude and feel like they have to get up and walk out. So. Okay. Um, I, I, I just want to say this. I did not intend this to become an exercise in justifying Palestinians. Right. That's not my concern at all. Because Palestinians will be whoever Palestinians choose to be. My concern is, what should we think about Israel? I was very struck by the fact that when I said, tell me stuff that you're not happy about with Israel, uh, you came up with a number of uh, internal technicalities, I guess one would say, about the structure of Israeli society. Uh, and no one could suggest that at any point they felt that Israel might have made any mistake anywhere along the line um, in any of its actions over the last 60, 70 years. Now, maybe you prompted, pushed, so on, you might finally come up with something. But I think we are a very defended people. I understand that. Israel's under great pressure. It's uh, frequently pillaried and misrepresented. And so all of our instincts are to say, you know, Israel's right, we didn't do anything. You know, okay, something wrong with it. I don't think the highway from Tel Aviv to Ramallah is very nice, you know, something. Right? And our criticisms are so trivial as to not be criticisms at all. 
Because we don't want to give any ground. We don't want to let our enemies use any of that stuff against us. So we fall into the strange suggestion that we wouldn't try and make about any other country in the world. That for 70 years, under intense pressure, never really did anything wrong. Never really made any mistakes. Never really took the wrong path. Never really failed to help. That it was, in fact, more or less perfect. We'll never make that claim. We never even imagine making that claim about any other place. We make it about Israel, understandably, because of the circumstances in which we are. And then we have to find ourselves understanding that the Palestinians don't want to give ground either. They don't want to deny the legitimacy of their leadership. They don't want to undermine the positions that have been taken. They want to stand for whatever the Palestinians stand for. They don't want to become nuanced and subtle and careful because they think it will be used against them. So I want to hold a strong line. That's why, and I know because I have spoken to these people after the TV cameras have gone. That's why mothers of suicide bombers will say to the TV cameras, I am proud of what my son did. And once the TV camera goes, they say in classic Jewish manner, Oi, what a fool he was. Why did he do that? What are they going to do? Go on public television and say, my son was an idiot? And Jews, stupidly, stupidly, we're supposed to be amongst the most subtle and intelligent people on the planet. And stupidly, we fall for the propaganda public statements of the Palestinians. Without any attempt to think, wait, if this was me, if I were in that situation, how would we behave? Now, you've made an assertion, sir, which I personally don't agree with, but, I mean, that's a fair enough assertion, right? If the Jews were faced with that, the Jews would start from scratch. They would not use that material, right? I don't think that's true, and I think we've got lots of evidence that it isn't true, right? But even if it is true, we don't know how they use those books. We don't know if they counter-use them, if they use them, if they say this is an example of the kind of talk which is very unhelpful, if they say this is fabulous stuff. We don't know. In this school for peace, I'm not talking about generally, in this school for peace. We don't know. We haven't got any idea at all. But no doubt there are people amongst you sitting there going, well, I think we know. <laughs> and we don't know. If we are going to try and deal with so complicated a situation as that that lies in the Middle East, something so close to our hearts and so passionately important for us, with closed minds of certainty, then I don't think we're going to help. Now, I don't mean to say that we should all rush out in the nearest public arena and go, actually, I've thought about it now. Clive Lawton's pointed it out to me. Israel's wrong. <laughs> Palestinians are fabulous. I'm not suggesting that for a minute. But if in our secret hearts, in our private times, in our moments on our own, in our readings of the material, we don't just for a moment try and think, wait, wait, how does this feel if the boot were on the other foot? How might this seem from another angle? Is there a human being on the other side? Or are they just devilish characters and I'm the only human being in this story? That, I think, is how Jews should think about Israel. And if we don't, I don't think we're part of the solution. We're part of the problem. Thank you.